Our text today is Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. This is the word of the Lord. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach. He told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. Then the disciples came to him, and they, they asked, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah has been fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people have longed to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God God indeed. Please be seated. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for your word, for your parables, for how you speak to us in story. And so, Lord, we ask that as we study your word today, that you impress it upon our hearts and our minds and our mouths, and we may carry it with us everywhere we go. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Good morning. morning. We all love stories, don't we? We we use stories all the time. We, We actually use stories in basically everything that we do. When we communicate lessons to kids or we try to impress something on our children, many times we communicate with stories, especially from our own childhood. Probably familiar with fables. Fables have been used in most cultures to teach some type of moral lessons. You'll find fables going back as far as time. Even pilots. Even pilots have a way of storytelling, and it usually starts with, so there I was. But seriously, if you think about how we communicate some, and especially if you think about how we communicate some of our deepest and most profound messages, we communicate those through story. That's why a really grasp, a gripping book, right, a book that grasps you, that, that you can't, you just can't actually put it down. That's why reading doesn't put me to sleep at night. <laughs> it keeps me up because it's compelling and it's engaging in the story. Or maybe you, you have a particular show or a movie that you can watch over and over again because the story is so captivating. What about little kids? Remember when the kids were little? What's the thing that they want before bed? I want a story. You should read stories to your big kids as well. But they want a a story before they go to bed. That's because we are, as image bearers of God, creatures who speak through story. We communicate through story. And and that's because God has always spoken to to His creatures and creation through story. 
history, his story. And see, that's where we are when we have this encounter in Matthew chapter 13. We get to begin the parables of Jesus, and Jesus is going to communicate to his disciples and to us via story. And in his stories, his parables are unlike any other story that we are ever going to encounter. They are so much deeper than sometimes they get reduced to just like, well, they're just moral lessons. But they're, they're so much more than moral lessons. Because we all have plenty of moral lessons. We, we have them in fables and other kind of cultural stories. The Jews have moral lessons as well. They were taught through a thing called Midrash, the Midrash, Midrashim. I used to study many of these stories, these fables when I was Jewish. So there's no shortage of moral lessons taught through story available to us. So why did Jesus just need to give us a few more? Well, he didn't. He didn't provide us the same thing that we have in moral lessons and other story. Jesus, Jesus uses parables to do two things, to teach us how to live the Christian life and to also flush out who is in faith and who is not. You see, Jesus communicates to us through parable to, to, to teach us how to live, how to apply the Christian life, taking something that's abstract and making it tangible. These are the application points from Jesus. And what he's going to do is teach us how to apply the Christian life. And we should probably listen to what he has to say. And so our text today begins at the very tail end of Jesus' family that came looking for him, right? So you remember, his family comes in. It's just going to be a day like the outpost prepared us for this. It's great. We know how to roll with this. There can be a band. There can be a mixer. It's church plant life. But if you remember, we're just coming off the tail end last week of Jesus his family coming looking for him. And they're banging on the door and they're saying, we're with the band. We're with the family. And Jesus then tells us who his real brothers and sisters are. But they're looking for him because he's, he's caused quite a stir. Everywhere Jesus goes, there's huge crowds. And, and he's, he's making ripples, cultural waves and ripples. And people are curious to see what Jesus is all about. And, and there are people that are really upset about this, the Pharisees especially, so much so that they actually say that Jesus is casting demons out by Satan. They call the Son of Man, the Son of God, Satan, right? They condemn him publicly. And so that's where we begin. And it says in verse 1, that same day, so the same day of Jesus and, and his family coming to see him, that same day Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea. So he's left. And, and the text is connecting what just happened to where he's going now. And then verse 2, and great crowds gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat down. And the whole crowd stood on the beach. Over and over and over again in the story of Jesus, we see him followed by a great crowd. Crowds are always around Jesus. And I, I think, as I'm thinking about this and I'm getting ready to teach apologetics, it becomes another apologetic for our faith. This isn't one guy who read the magic plates and a hat that nobody saw. These are crowds of people, witnesses, that are coming to hear what Jesus has to say and see what Jesus is going to do. They're curious. They want to know. Maybe they're skeptical. This is a really, really big deal. And so there's so many people, there's so many people that for Jesus to teach them, he has to get in a boat on a lake while there's hordes of people standing on the beach. I mean, you have to think about this. This is a shifting point, too, in Jesus' ministry. Where has he been doing a majority of his speaking and his ministering? It's inside buildings. And, and he's got the Pharisees after him. They're condemning him. I mean, we all know what's going to eventually happen because of them to Jesus. 
but, but he's moving out of the synagogues and he's moving out into open spaces. He's moving out into places where it's public. He's not teaching in the synagogues, right? And, and this is happening today. This happened now in places like China and Iran where Christians can't meet in homes anymore. They definitely can't meet in churches. And so they're going outside and they're holding church, they're holding Bible teaches, teachings in places where they're hopefully a little bit more protected and they can hold larger groups of people. And we saw this during COVID. This happened up in Canada. There were uh, churches that had been shut down, right? And so then the pastors are going out and they're holding services out in the woods. And the Canadians were sending helicopters looking for them, for these dangerous looking church people. But it happened here in Denver too. We had a friend who rented a building and his church couldn't meet in that building because they closed the building down. So then they picked the whole church up and they met on another friend's farm property. They went out and met outside, right? God's people have always been creative when they need to meet and they need to worship and they need to study. And so that's what Jesus is doing. He's meeting outside of the synagogue, outside away from houses, and he's out on the water and he's sitting in a boat with multitudes standing on the beach. And this is where we get to hear Jesus speak in a parable. And see, up until this point, he's used imagery and he's used illustration, but now he's going to speak in a parable. And what's really interesting, I think at least, is if you were to look at the, the three synoptic gospels, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, from this point on, Jesus speaks one-third of what his speaking from this point on the synoptic gospels is spoken in parable. So the parables are a really big deal. And the, par the word parable is actually a Greek word. And it's a compound word made up of the verb hallow, which means to throw or to lay or to place, and the prefix para, which means alongside of. So the idea of a parable is placing or laying something alongside something else for the purpose of comparison. Okay? The purpose of a parable is the idea of placing or laying something alongside something else for the purpose of a comparison. And so this is what Jesus is going to do. He's going to use comparisons to teach us about the Christian life, to make the abstract actionable. We talk here all the time about all of Christ for all of life. This is how we live all of Christ for all of life. So verses 3 through 8. And then he told them many things in parables, saying, A sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. And other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. And immediately they sprang up, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. And other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. It's important that before we dive into this, that we remember something. We talk about this a lot here. We have to think about the context in which this was written, and the context of who this was written for, because Jesus was speaking to real people. He was saying this to real people, giving them a real example using imagery that they would have understood. So before we apply it to our lives, we have to think about how it was spoken into their lives. So when we look at this, I am not a farmer. I just have farm animals, and sometimes I have to go chicken chasing or goat chasing. I had to goat chase the other night. I went out to like close up outside, and both goats were outside of the goat pen looking at me, and I was like, this isn't good. <laughs> We have a fear about Ricky hitting the beehives because he jumps on everything. But alas, I'm not a farmer, so I don't know much about modern-day farming methods. So if you do, 
some of what we read here may strike you as a little bit strange, that you would scatter the seed before you till the soil. But in the first century, that was a common, was a common farming technique. Now, it might not make any sense to us, but it was a practice then. So these farmers would take and scatter seed, and then they would till the soil. And so what we see in this parable is we see that a farmer sows in four different types of soil. First is a pathway. Maybe it's a farmer trying to reclaim his field, right? You throw some seed on the pathway that people have naturally trodden down. Well, and then the birds come and they take all that seed away. And then you've got rocky ground, which would mean that the, the soil's kind of shallow. So plants may spring up, but they're going to die quickly because there's not much soil and they'll get scorched from the sun. And then you've got thorny ground. And the thorns are going to come and choke and kill the good seed. The bad thorns will kill the good seed. And then lastly, he talks about good soil. You plant in good soil, and it produces good pro, uh, grain. And he says so much, so it's 100-fold or 60-fold or 30-fold. And something else to keep in mind, because we don't really think in these volumes now, is that the average yield of a seed in the first century was 8 to 10. 8 to 10-fold. So now you're looking at 100-fold. You're looking at 60-fold, 30-fold. So Jesus is using an example here that's so much greater order of magnitude greater than, than farmers would have seen in the first century. So it's a simple parable, yes? It has a simple meaning, and a simple meaning of this parable would probably be something like different soils produce different results. Different soils produce different results. But there's a much deeper meaning, and it's an incredible deeper meaning, and you're going to have to wait until next week to hear what it is, because we're going to cover the deeper meaning of this parable then. So that's your tease. You better come back next week or you won't find the deeper meaning. It's like, I just learned about soil this week. I don't even know what to do. I never thought I was going to be a farmer. You all can go home and till the soil. But we will talk about the deeper meaning next week. But remember, this, the reason there's a deeper meaning is it's like the word parable. It's, it's this story with another meaning with comparison laying aside. And how do we know this? How do we know that there's going to be a deeper meaning? Other than if you had been using your Greek lexicons this morning and looking at compound Greek words. Well, Jesus actually tells us in verse 9, he says, He who has ears, let him hear. He says, To you who understand, you will understand. He who has ears, let him hear. He's saying, Hear me deeply. Listen to what I am saying. And then it continues in verse 10. The disciples came to him and said, why do you speak to them in parables? And, and they want to know, like, why aren't you just direct? Why not just tell people, do this, don't do that? Why speak in a story? Why not just tell us the what for? I don't know if there's a Greek word for what for, but if there is, maybe there was a, a slang, a colloquialism in the first century. Just use words. Why speak in this parable? Why speak in a story? And here's Jesus' reply in 11 through 15. And he answered them, To you it has been given to know that the secrets... To, sorry, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For the one who has, more will be given. And he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables. Because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, I would heal them. 
he starts off and he says that those who know him will be given access to the secrets of heaven. Those who know him will be given access to the secrets of heaven. But he's not talking about like secret Gnostic knowledge. You should always be wary if people promise you secret Gnostic knowledge. But that's what the pagans would have thought. Pagans would have thought that there was some type of Gnostic, secret, mystical knowledge. What he's actually saying when he's talking about the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, what he is saying is that the things that were previously concealed will now be revealed. The prophecy that that you have read about will be revealed to you in the person that is Jesus Christ. It's a revealing. It's an unveiling. We're going to show you what, what the people that came before prophesied about in real and tangible ways. You will know the secrets to the kingdom of heaven through the person who is Jesus Christ, His revelation. And see, those who believe in Him become privy to the power that is Jesus Christ. But he's also pointing something else out that's very big. See, he says to you, referring to to those that know who he is, and we're going to talk a little bit later about how we know who those people are. He said, you understand. And those, well, who don't understand, they're not actually followers of Jesus. See, here's the deal, family. There are people who claim to be Christians who are not Christians. There are people that may use Christian language. They may quote the Bible. They may... (coughs) They may put a quote on their wall, could even be in their email signature, but they may not be saved. You see, they claim one thing, but they act in the opposite way. We've talked about this a lot as we've worked through Matthew, this idea of, of saying you're something, but then not having the inner heart change and actually being the something that you say. And see, these people, these people, they hear Jesus' words, but they don't understand them because they can't put any of them into practice. They hear the words, but they don't actually hear the words. Because faith requires action. It's a verb. It's not just a feeling. I feel like this today. No, faith, like love, is something you have to go do. So listen closely again, 13 through 15. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled. It says, you will not hear, I'm sorry, you will indeed hear, but never understand, and you will indeed see, but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull. And with their ears they can barely hear. And with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart, and in turn, I would heal them. See, Jesus tells them that he speaks in parables to those, uh, that when he speaks in parables to those who do not know him, they will not understand. Those who do not not know Jesus will not understand his words. And then he quotes from Isaiah 6. You will hear and not understand, see but not perceive. There are people that have heard the gospel message and they just don't get it. You've probably met those people in your life. They hear the parables and I say, so? So what? You're like, what do you mean, so what? It's incredible. It doesn't make any sense to you when, when it doesn't click with them. And this isn't like an intelligence thing. You're not like, are you stupid? Don't ever say that. It's not an intelligence thing. It's a heart thing. They don't get it. The Holy Spirit is not working inside their heart. And this is what Isaiah prophesies. And then it becomes further proof that Christ is the Messiah, that Christ is who he says he is. 
But he doesn't leave us hanging on the negative. He, he leaves us with hope, which is verses 16 and 17. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. He said, starts it off with, basically, if you hear, if you know Jesus, you're blessed. People who understand the parables are blessed, for they understand, for they hear, for they see. People begged for this. They longed for, they wanted to see and meet the Messiah. They, they read the prophecy, they prayed, they hoped, and they, righteous people, and they didn't even get a chance to meet Jesus. He's saying that there were righteous people that came before you that didn't even have access to this because Christ had not come yet, and here you are. You're blessed. To know Jesus Christ, you are blessed. But here's the reality. Here's the reality. There are those who are in faith, and there are those who are not. And this is the reality of the world. If you actually had to divide the world into groups, we were talking last night about how stupid it is to divide the world into groups by letters and skin colors and all of these abstract silliness. But if you had to divide the world into groups, there would be two groups. There would be believers, and there would be unbelievers. That is the division. That's it. There's nothing else people who the Holy Spirit has moved inside and, and, and those he has not, and, and some not yet. Hopefully a lot more of those are not yet. And see, until Christ returns, there will always be two groups of people. And that can be so hard because we know people that seem really good. Or, or maybe we know people in other religious traditions and they seem devout. But their tradition denies Jesus. It hurts our hearts to think that may, they may not be saved. And this must have been really frustrating for the apostles with the Jews, with the people that they had done life with and family with and, and that, that knew the Torah, people that were intellectually smart. We, we, sometimes I think, unfortunately, we reduce the Pharisees and the scribes and we pretend like they weren't smart. Just because they were sinful doesn't mean that they were stupid. These were people that knew the law, that they knew the Torah, they knew the prophecy. And they had Jesus right in front of their eyes. They were experts in Scripture. They saw him perform miracles, and they denied him. They witnessed it. It wasn't like they read the book and like, I don't know if I really believe that's true. They were there. And they attributed it to Satan. That, that's how hard their heart is. They even come to a point to deny him where eventually they're going to send him to his death. These were the experts that were supposed to be looking for the signs of the Messiah coming. And they denied Jesus. They didn't get it. The Spirit didn't move in them. I, I knew this when I was Jewish. I experienced this as a Jew. I was told in the Orthodox Jewish community that the Sabbath laws would actually provide you more joy. And they didn't. You can never legalize your way to joy. You cannot. That somehow, through this idea of legalizing God's Word, we would experience God's law in a different way, and then we'd be closer to God. It, it was, no, it, it was just like mental gymnastics of trying to keep the law, and then finding all the workarounds to law. But actually say it was less, less spiritually connecting to the Lord than more. And that's why I was yearning, I was yearning for something that I knew that I needed that I couldn't find in the law, which of course is grace in Jesus Christ, which actually makes sense. Because think about Judaism right now. We're talking, I don't know if we were talking about this last night. You can't fully even practice Judaism now because the temple's gone. 
There's no priestly class, there's no sacrifices, and there's no temple. All of those are required by Jewish law, by the Torah, to practice Judaism. The whole sacrificial system is gone. It was prophesized to come crashing down. It did in 70 AD. And so what have, now do you have bits and pieces of a tradition? But it doesn't have a foundation to hold on to anymore. And then there's a hardness of heart that comes with that. It doesn't matter if you're Jewish. It's the same if you're, you're Muslim or if you're, if you're Mormon or you're a Buddhist or you're an atheist. There's a hardness of heart that comes with not knowing the joy of being a forgiven sinner. It's just a reality. Jesus experienced the hardness of people's hearts towards him. You will experience the hardness of people's hearts towards you. Jesus tells you over and over again, that's coming. Persecution's coming. Difficulty's coming. But you're not alone. They persecuted me, but I love you. We'll get through this. This all serves my glory. It will actually provide you hope and endurance and actually joy. And then people think you're really weird. How can you be in joy when everything's so difficult? And you would say, well, God's really great. And they say, that's silly. And you say, you have no idea how joyous it is because otherwise I couldn't survive any of this. It's the reality. Jesus experienced the hardness of people's hearts. We will experience the hardness of people's hearts. See, when the Holy Spirit isn't working in somebody's heart, what's going to lead? Sin. We know this to be true. We know that the problem for everybody is sin. Every single person has been an enemy of God. But only believers are made aware of their status as an enemy of God, of their sin before a perfect Lord, their need for salvation. See, that's where the Holy Spirit cuts in us, is He makes it known that we need God, that we need salvation, that we can't do this alone. That we can only become strong by first becoming meek, by dying to ourselves, we become reborn. Those who are in faith know that they can't do it alone, that they need a Savior. Those who the Spirit has not worked in don't know that they need a Savior and they don't think that they've done anything to be saved from. So it shouldn't be surprising to us when people who don't get it don't act in Christian or moral ways, when they lie or they cheat or they cause destruction. That's why we should pray for them, for Jesus to move deep in their heart, for Jesus to, to lift them up. Because once, once he does, there's this reward beyond belief. There's riches beyond belief. Not in a Joleth Osteenieth kind of way. Not, you might get material riches. I mean, we're all pretty materially lucky in this, in this place that we live in, truthfully. But what he's talking about is these riches, these real riches that come through faith. We've been, I know you guys have all been doing a great job at this every day. Proverbs, chapter of Proverbs a day. Yesterday, on the 22nd, was chapter 22. And Proverbs 22.4 said this, The reward for humility and fear of the Lord is riches and honor and life. Your reward for fearing the Lord is riches and honor and life. Riches and honor, but not from man. Not like rolling around in gold coins and plaques with your name on it. This is being in the family of God. Being an adopted son or daughter entitled to the inheritance of God true riches, true honor, made clean despite of your sin, real treasure, not honor among men, that's silliness, but honor that becomes associated with the name above all names. That's an honor that can actually never be stripped from you, a name that can never be stripped from you, a status that can never be stripped from you. And see, those are the things that make up eternal life in Christ. Like, that's incredible. Your faith gives you eternal life forever and ever and ever despite your past and your future. 
See, those who have eternal life in Christ understand Christ's words. And listen to what the Apostle John says. Some of my favorite, favorite verses. My sheep hear my voice. This is John 10, 27 through 28. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those who are in Christ know Christ and they respond to Jesus. They respond to his words. They respond to his parables. That's why hearing a parable or hearing a sermon or hearing a talk or reading the Bible can like literally change somebody just like that. They can have this, this moment of, of deep and meaningful change as the Spirit regenerates them, cuts deep into them. That's why we can read a passage a thousand times and on a thousand first time, you're like, whoa, was that in there? Like, I've studied this in Greek. I don't remember. Whoa, you see things. The Holy Spirit helps you see things. See, for those who are in Christ, they understand. Verse 9 again, he who has ears, let him hear. He who understands, let him understand. See, that's why God speaks to us in story and not just like, do this, don't do that. Because stories stick with us. Stories stick with us. That's why we, we talk in stories. Think about when we give warnings to other people about things that are dangerous. Most of the time it comes with a story. If you want to tell the kids, don't dry your hair in the bathtub, usually tell them a story about someone dropping a hairdryer in a bathtub and electrocuting themselves. Because at some point the kids are going to ask, why? Why can't I dry my hair? It's much more efficient that way. <laughs> Don't dry your hair in the bathtub. But it comes with a story, a warning. My previous career, my previous full-time career had, and it does, includes a lot of danger. Ah. <laughs> you know, despite any assurances that anybody ever gives you, hurdling a tin can through the air five to eight miles above the earth even 800 feet above the earth, at hundreds of miles an hour that is questionably airworthy is not particularly safe. And if you look at aviation, most of what is learned in aviation, safety-wise, has come from an issue, an incident, or an accident. And many times, a fatal accident. And so when pilots especially try to educate each other on things that can kill you, or things we want people to stay away from, we do it via story. We share a narrative with an illustration that hopefully has an anchor point or a sticking point in someone's mind so that there's recall later. So if they end up in that situation later, they say, oh man, I don't want to overshoot base to final. Could run into an airplane there. We do this with children all the time. We share stories and lessons to provide wisdom and guidance. Some parents do this in a negative way. It's the parents that can only tell horror stories. We may have someone in our family that way right? Everybody's die. Everything will kill you. Everything can kill you. But, but you can also do this in a, in a really healthy way. You can share stories with your children that can have a meaningful impact, not just to terrify them, but to have a meaningful impact to help them make good decisions, to walk a path of wisdom, to, to maybe avoid pitfalls that we all made when we were younger. We're not trying to relive or glorify things in the wrong way, but instead give them something that sticks an anchor point, a life lesson that will prepare them to lead an easier life. Stories have impact. Stories stick with us. 
And that's because stories elicit usually an emotional response. And that's why God speaks to us in story and not just the list of do this and don't do that. Because we are creatures that are emotional. You all have emotional responses. It's okay to be emotional creatures. It's not okay to be driven by your feelings, but God created your emotions on purpose. They can be used righteously, and they should be. We are image bearers of a holy God. How can we not be emotion-bearing creatures? And so he, he gives us this love letter, his story, in the form of his holy scriptures. And, and, and he gives it to us in this way in different literary devices. The parables are a type of a literary device. He gives it to us this way in different literary devices because it, it touches our heart. That's why it's so different reading this than your favorite novel. You don't go back and re-quote Stephen King in the stand and say, today we will read page 84, line 3. I don't know, I don't know what's on that line. It would be scary. To, let's, let's not go look. Right? But we do quote and memorize God's story and some of it's in poetry and some of it's in parables and some of it's in narrative because he speaks to us through different literary devices to generate an emotional response to draw us to himself. These beautiful literary devices like the parables. We looked at the simple meaning of the parable earlier, but there's so much more. It's like an onion. He who has ears, let him hear. We start peeling these stories back as we start walking through these parables over the next weeks. We're, gonna, we're going to experience why Jesus uses them to communicate with us. And they're like onions. We're going to peel layer and layer and layer because they're going to create and connect us emotionally to God. He who has ears, let him understand, let him hear. These parables should become anchor points for us in our lives. Years ago, an applicant pulled the landing gear up, but he wasn't supposed to pull the landing gear up because we were traveling down a runway at a high rate of speed. That has become an anchor point for me in my life. He was a really, and still is a really good pilot who made a really big mistake that day. And it became an anchor point for me now in how I watch people's hands, especially people that I really trust. What are they doing? Are they grabbing the wrong thing? They're anchor points in our lives. It's permanent in my mind now. Every time I fly something that has a landing gear handle that goes up and down. God's giving that to us in parables for all of Christ, for all of life, to have anchor points that we can go back to that are going to teach us how to interact with other people in his kingdom, how to interact with him in his kingdom, how to go be Christ-like when we go about our lives. We're going to do that. We'll start peeling that onion back next week of the parable of the sower. But before we did that, and that's why we're here today, is it's so important for us to understand the why. Why stories? Why parables? And the why is, is so that those who are in faith, God's elect, would be known and that they could apply the Christian faith to live out all of Christ for all of life, for all of time. And so that's my prayer for you. As, as we work through the parables of Jesus, is that these become anchor points in your soul for your faith. Anchor points that you can go back to. It, it was really wonderful. I had a, another pastor friend a number of years ago, and there was some bidding going on for the church space that they rent. And he wanted to make sure that he was doing it morally correct. Because if they outbid one church, because they happen to have more financial resources, that would mean another church also can't meet. This isn't like two cake shops fighting over the bakery. And so how can he go 
how could, or how could he go and be morally upright and also try to get space that he believed that his congregation was called to? We came back to the parables. We studied the parables together. The parable of the wicked tenants, I think, is what the one we looked at. It's all of Christ for all of life. Taking the Christian faith and in action into the world. These are the anchors of our soul, the things to come back to as you execute the Christian life, as you share your faith. And don't be surprised when people reject them. Be heartbroken, don't be mad. Pray for people who don't understand. Pray that they will have ears that will hear. Because the message is so clear, it is so accessible. And we don't know when God will move in people's hearts. Just because God hasn't moved in people's hearts now doesn't mean that he won't move later. It's not our place to condemn. It's our place to be faithful citizens of God's kingdom, doing the work that he's called us to do. But the message is clear and it is accessible. And if you meet people who don't understand, pray for their hearts. Pray that God moves inside their hearts, that he, that he moves inside the hearts of those who do not know him to draw them to him so they can get the riches and the honor and the life that comes from faith in Christ, the joy that comes from faith in Christ. It's so incredible. Jesus gives us all of these tools to live a Christ-like life now. Christ-like life now, yeah. It's harder to say in my head. To live this Christ-like life now, he gives us all of these tools. And he also gives us eternal life. We improve God's kingdom here, like tangible, real impact in the way we love our neighbors, the way we bring peace, the way we stand up for what is true, the way we handle persecution. And if that's not even enough, because that should be enough, he also gives us eternal life. That's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. And so I encourage you as we study these parables, tie them to your soul. Memorize them. Study them. Be gracious that you can understand them. Be gracious that you are in faith in Jesus Christ. Be gracious that God has given you his story, that you're a part of his story, and that we get to be here to do all things for Christ, all of Christ, for all of life, and a life forever with our Creator. Let's pray. Father, we are so incredibly grateful for Jesus, for his parables, for our heart to understand. Lord, as we study these parables, we, we just pray that you impress them upon us, that they're anchors for our soul, that they drive our lives in Christ-likeness as we interact with the world, with our brothers and sisters, with our enemies. Thank you, Lord, for saving us, for giving us the riches and the honor and the life that can only come through faith in you, life forever without end. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.